0: The courts are only so strong as the uh, opinion of the people behind them. We don't have an army to enforce our opinions, and we don't have any exchequer. So the only force uh, that we have is the force of the opinions that we write. And when the people understand the uh, procedures of the court and understand the opinions, well, they give it their approval. And that is a greater force than armies is because it brings about Adherence to the opinion and an enforcement of them uh, by acclaim rather than by force Justice Tom C. Clark, an associate justice
1: of the Supreme Court for 18 years until his retirement in 1967 Asks our understanding of the work of the highest court in the nation the United States Supreme Court The head of the third branch of our federal government the judiciary The business of the Supreme Court like that of most law courts in the United States, is the hearing of cases and the handing down of judicial opinions. But as befits its high governmental purpose, the Supreme Court has its own special makeup and its own procedures, and these, of course, are colored by traditions now nearly two centuries old. We have spoken with several of the men who know the court intimately, and we have asked them to tell us how the court goes about its work. Nine men sit on the Supreme Court, The chief justice of the United States and eight associate justices, all of whom are appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the Senate. Who are these men occupying so unique and powerful a position in our government? How are they chosen? How long do they serve in office? We raise these questions with Anthony Lewis, a reporter who has with great distinction covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times. Mr. Lewis day-by-day coverage of the court brought him the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting in 1955 and again in 1963 and his book Gideon's Trumpet is an absorbing study of the court at work.
2: We began by asking Mr. Lewis
1: who the president may appoint to the High Court.
2: There are virtually no formal limitations on what sort of person the president can appoint to the Supreme Court. He needn't even be a lawyer it depends on who the president is or what he wants to accomplish at the moment. He may have a political end in view. He may, may feel it's desirable for some external reasons to have a Catholic or a Jew or a Negro on the Supreme Court at a particular moment in history. And that's not an invalid consideration. It's an appropriate consideration because the Supreme Court is a political institution. People know and care who is on it. They're not up in the clouds, out of sight, and so that's, that is a consideration there isn't any rule of thumb. There may come a time when a president feels it desirable to appoint someone from the other party. Truman appointed Harold Burton, who had been a Republican senator and a friend of Harry Truman's, not only a friend, but a man he regarded highly as a person of integrity and a good judgment. When uh, Eisenhower was president, he appointed uh, Justice Brennan, a Democrat, I think, because it seemed desirable at that particular time to appoint a Democrat. I would think myself that I would like it best if presidents uh, appointed members of the Supreme Court on the basis of uh, moral and intellectual and scholarly and character uh, considerations, but very few do. They appoint their friends, their attorney general, you know, that sort of uh, person. And there isn't any rule that says people appointed for a bad reason turn out to be bad judges, uh, because uh, it's very hard to predict. How a person will turn out as a Supreme Court Justice because nobody's ever had the opportunity to behave like a Supreme Court Justice until he does it. There aren't any other jobs available in which you have the last word on what's to be done in this country, with no one to say you nay, and no limits except your own conscience, and no time limit, and no voters. You don't have that setting, and so no one knows exactly the way you're going to behave when you do it. Are Supreme Court
1: Justices sometime a surprise, once on the bench, even to the Presidents who appointed them?
2: Examples of uh, justices who didn't turn out the way presidents expected are almost too numerous. Stories uh Teddy Roosevelt, who was very, very concerned about uh, antitrust, trust-busting, and uh, at a time when the Supreme Court, as a group, was uh, very skeptical about trust-busting, intended to knock down the cases that the government brought, had a vacancy to fill, and it was suggested that Oliver Wendell Holmes of Massachusetts be appointed He asked uh, Senator Henry Cabot Lodge the elder whether Holmes would be sound on antitrust and was assured that Holmes would be sound on antitrust and Holmes went on the court and the very first case he had, antitrust case, he was very unsound on antitrust from Teddy Roosevelt's point of view and against the government and always was on antitrust. The
1: president we know must submit the names of his court nominees to the Senate for their advice and consent under the terms of the Constitution. But can the Senate,
2: in fact, block a nomination? Senatorial confirmation of Supreme Court justices has, in my opinion, become pretty much of a joke. Back in the 19th century, nominees were rejected rather regularly, frequently. I'm not sure that it was on any more holy grounds then. I think it probably was politics then as much as now, but it meant something then. A president who nominated someone to the Supreme Court really had to reckon with the possibility that the nominee would be rejected. That just doesn't really seem to happen anymore. Maybe somehow presidents have become more conservative in their choices and they choose within a narrower area. If they appointed a really eccentric person perhaps he would still be rejected. I don't know. Indeed no appointee to the Supreme Court has failed to be confirmed for more than 35 years. How long do
1: the justices serve? The Constitution provides for appointment for life.
2: Appointment for life what it says in the Constitution is to serve on good behavior was copied by the framers of the Constitution from the Tenure of Office Act in England, the theory being that judges would be independent of the other forces in government if they didn't have to look for reappointment. And What does it mean? It means... Uh, really what it says. Uh, People tend to serve on the Supreme Court for very long periods. There have been fewer than a hundred Supreme Court justices in the history of the United States. That's not really very many. People have served for 25, 30, 35 years. Well, let's see, there is one member of the present court who's been a justice for 30 years and another who's been a justice for nearly 30 years. Uh, It tends to be a long thing, and it's uh, terminable really only on the, well, by act of God or by the wish of the person concerned. It does lead to problems about age. Uh, There are stories about it, about uh, senility setting in, the famous old story about uh, Justice Field of California, who, when he came on the court as a junior justice, was asked by his... Seven of his colleagues to wait upon the 8th, Mr. Justice Greer... ...who had been senile for some time and sort of thought in fits and starts. And his colleagues said to uh, Field, please go to Justice Greer... ...and tell him he's got to resign. And Field did, and Greer did resign. And then, as it turned out, Field sat on the court... ...longer than anybody else in history. He deliberately wanted to break John Marshall's record, and he did... And toward the end of that time, his colleagues thought he was slipping, and they sent someone around to see him and tell him he really ought to resign. And this person, having heard the story about Field and Greer, thought he'd soften the old gentleman up by beginning, Mr. Justice, do you remember a day many years ago when you had the difficult duty to perform of calling upon your revered colleague, Mr. Justice Greer? Yes, I do. Dirtier day's work I never did in my life. So it is possible for uh, age to uh, really become a problem, but curiously, we're in a phase right now in which everything seems to be paradoxical. People were afraid about elderly judges because they would be so reactionary. They'd be out of step with the times, and the country would have moved on, and they'd still be looking backward. And that, on the whole, was true of the court, and and certainly Justice Jackson, who was a great student of the court and uh, as well as a member of it, had... I would suppose everybody, every serious person on his side when he said that the court had generally represented the conservative view of life in the United States. And look at today. Today you have a a court with several people of 70 or over. Certainly uh, nobody would deny that by the current standards of American politics, the Supreme Court is way out ahead. I don't know if it's ahead or behind, but good or bad, we we don't have to decide that. But uh, by the general level of political ideas the courts to the left, and uh, the courts are not looking backwards.
1: What is the particular importance of the Office of Chief Justice? Does he
2: have special powers? Deciphering the relative significance of the Chief Justice is really one of those completely circular things. It's impossible to say. You do know, for particular people, you do know that Marshall intellectually dominated his court, and uh, Jefferson, who disliked him so intensely and disliked his views, always thought that Marshall practiced a kind of magic over the other people and somehow had them in spiritual chains. In fact, a a chief justice has only one vote, and if he happens to be an eccentric chief justice, he can be outvoted 8 to 1 every time and have no influence whatsoever. Uh, On the other hand, I think within the court, the fact that he is chief justice, if he is a person of political skill can give him some weight to try to get the court to agree on a middle ground on issues. I think some weight. How much is, is just another question. I, I'm not uh, cutting down his importance because obviously he's been very important, but you can't win without the votes. It's just like any political institution.
1: The Chief Justice and the Associate Justices are appointed by the President. That's clearly stated in the Constitution, but why are there nine members of the court? How has that number been
2: determined? Well, the number nine is just an accident. No number fixed in the Constitution, and it varied from six, seven, eight, ten, nine, and was changed often by Congress at those times for political reasons, to deny appointments, for example, to Andrew Johnson after Lincoln's assassination. The number was reduced by Congress, so Johnson couldn't appoint any justices, or increased because somebody was there they wanted to give appointments to. But gradually, the number seemed to settle on nine, And as is so often the case in this country, these purely practical, accidental things become fixed with a kind of holiness, so that when Roosevelt tried to make it some other number than nine, it was tampering with the very temple of the law. There is some point in it, because if the number got much larger, uh, it would really be impossible for the group to operate as a single unit. It's very, very hard to get even three people to agree on anything. Anyone who's tried to get a contract signed that involves more than three people knows that. If you had a larger number, the court would probably have to sit in panels, which would spoil the whole point of having one final voice. At a quick glance, the Supreme
1: Court chamber looks much like any courtroom, except, of course, that there are nine justices seated behind the bench, not a single judge. It is here that the court hears argument of cases at law. Now, all cases are basically quarrels, quarrels between people or organizations or institutions but cases which are heard before the Supreme Court are in many ways special, both as regards their number and their significance to the nation. What requirements must a Supreme Court case meet, and how will it come before the High Court? We discuss these and related questions with John P. Frank of Phoenix, Arizona, a lawyer and past professor of constitutional law at Indiana University and the Yale Law School. Mr. Frank has often appeared before the court, and he has written Marble Palace, an informal examination of the role of the Supreme Court in American life. To begin with, we ask Mr. Frank if the court might not make judgments on points of law or general public concern, as it might seem wise to the justices.
3: If the matter does not really lend to a lawsuit, it can never be decided by the Supreme Court. Congress is given the power to deal with all of the problems of the American people. And the president really has the power to deal with all of the problems of the American people. The Supreme Court does not. That is to say, because the Supreme Court is limited to cases and controversies or to actual lawsuits, this matter was settled for all future times in George Washington's administration. At that time, President Washington was troubled about some points of international law. And he wrote a letter to the Supreme Court, and he said, gentlemen of the Supreme Court, would you please tell me what the law is on this subject? And the court was terribly, terribly troubled as to whether they could or should, or indeed they may have been troubled, as to how to answer the President of the United States. And they finally concluded that the best solution was not to answer him at all. So they wrote him a letter. And they said, we're sorry, Mr. President, but our business is to decide cases and not to answer questions. And since you haven't given us a case, but only a series of questions, we're terribly sorry that we can't answer you. And then they went on to say, we have very great confidence that your wisdom is so great that you don't really need our answers anyway. We often hear of a
1: test case coming before the court. What do we mean by a test case? Does that indicate a special type of lawsuit?
3: Well, the term test case means that the people have decided to conduct the lawsuit partly for the purpose of getting an answer to the question. But it means that they had a lawsuit to start with. Let me give you an example. Perhaps the most important dollar case decided in this century by the United States Supreme Court was the matter of the Gold Clause. In Mr. Roosevelt's administration... Franklin D., that is, the question was whether the country could go off the gold standard. And that was a legal question. And somebody had a claim for an $11 amount which arose in connection with a bond or some other security. And that $11 question was carried all the way to the United States Supreme Court. And thus it became a test case. But what I'm saying that's important is that unless there is a way of having a plaintiff and a defendant, someone with a claim, someone with a defense, there never can be a determination by the Supreme Court of the United States.
1: Of course, we've all heard many times the phrase, I'll take the case to the Supreme Court, most often from someone who has recently lost a lawsuit. Well, what chance is there that the average lawsuit will indeed find its way to the Supreme Court? What requirements must the case meet?
3: Every year in the United States, millions of lawsuits, quite literally millions of legal matters, get started in the courts of the country. But the number of cases actually decided by the United States Supreme Court in a year can only be from 100 to 200. So this means, necessarily, that something like 99 and 99 hundredths percent of all of the cases in the United States can never get to the Supreme Courts at all the general run of cases, the minor traffic matter of the estate, something of the sort, they won't involve an act of Congress, they won't involve a treaty, they won't involve the Constitution of the United States very often, and those cases cannot go to the United States Supreme Court at all. Let me be concrete about this. When a normal matter comes up for trial, it is first and foremost a factual question, As for example, there is a collision of automobiles and the question is which one got to the corner first and had the right-of-way. Or there is a murder and the question is did the defendant do it? And this involves all sorts of actual live testimony. People saw it or people have information or people identify the murder weapon or something of the sort. And the upshot is a determination of who was careless or who pulled the trigger. Now, the Supreme Court of the United States cannot deal with that sort of question. That sort of question is terribly, terribly time-consuming. Clearly, the Supreme Court could not possibly deal with very many cases in which it had to determine that sort of factual issue, and it doesn't try. What the Supreme Court is supposed to decide is what is the law of the subject. In the rare instance in which an auto accident might get there, The Supreme Court might have to decide what is the function of the jury in that case. Was the matter sent to the jury properly or was it taken away from the jury improperly? But it will not decide who got to the corner first or in the murder case. The Supreme Court may decide whether there was a confession which was wrongfully or rightfully obtained. That will be a matter of law but it will not decide who pulled the trigger and who is responsible for the murder.
1: What, then, is the day-to-day business of
3: the court? Well, let's take, first of all, the questions of the interpretation of the Acts of Congress, which is, after all, the bedrock of what the Supreme Court has to do day by day. This is its working stuff. The question is, for example, how the Fair Labor Standards Act, the act which governs wages and hours, shall be interpreted. Or take, for example, the problem of the antitrust laws. What is a monopoly? What is a restraint of trade? When is a merger too much of a merger? When does it get to be too big? Any of those are questions of acts of Congress. And there are many, many, many acts of Congress. On my shelves in my law office, we have two shelves solid simply of acts of Congress. Any of these can give rise to lawsuits, disputes, the Supreme Court can be called upon to decide any of them. That's one area. Second, and more important, is the interpretation of the Constitution of the United States. In that area, many parts of the Constitution may come up for judicial interpretation. These may involve matters of freedom of speech. They may involve matters of freedom of religion. They may involve matters of criminal justice and criminal process. All of these constitutional questions are fair meat for the Supreme Court and it is called upon to interpret it many, many times. Finally, there's the matter of the interpretation of treaties, and these may involve questions of interpretation which are very much the business of the Supreme Court.
1: We have been talking about the kinds of cases which reach the High Court. Where do these cases come from?
3: The answer is that the Supreme Court of the United States is given what is called original jurisdiction. In other words, cases can start there, but only in a very limited number of instances. For practical purposes, those are the cases between states. As, for instance, in my own area, we had a great case of Arizona against California over the waters of the Colorado River. Those can originate in the Supreme Court. That is a very small number of the cases. It won't run to one or two a year at the outside of the 2,000 cases which the Supreme Court may have to deal with in some fashion. All other cases originate in the lower courts, and they may originate either in the lower federal courts or they may originate in the lower state courts. And then they must work their way up to the top, and they will then be considered by the United States Supreme Court in terms of their importance. Once a case has worked its way up to the
1: Supreme Court, and assuming that it meets the requirements which you've outlined, is it then certain that the court will accept it?
3: Oh no, whether a case will be taken or not really has to be a decision by the Supreme Court fundamentally as to whether the matter is important enough to get there. And that decision they make, and each year approximately 2,000 cases are presented to it by people who say our case is important. And each year, the Supreme Court actually chooses between 100 and 200 of those cases and says, yes, we agree with you, they are important. And it decides those cases. And that's all. Any citizen may petition the Supreme Court
1: to hear his case. And in fact, there have been cases which first attracted the court's attention in handwritten petitions mailed to Washington by men serving time in jail. Usually, however, the men responsible for preparing and presenting a Supreme Court case are the lawyers who represent the opposing parties in the case. Any lawyer who can practice before the highest court in his own state can, after completion of some routine formalities, be admitted to argue before the Supreme Court of the United States. There are standards of procedure now well established by tradition which guide the lawyers in this work. We spoke about these procedures and about the experience of arguing a high court case with Osmond K. Frankel, a distinguished New York lawyer who first appeared before the court in 1936 and has frequently returned to argue cases since then. Mr. Frankel first traced the initial steps in bringing
4: a case before the Supreme Court. The lawyer who wants to take a case to the United States Supreme Court has to prepare a paper that has to elaborate your contentions to show that the case comes within the jurisdiction of the court and has sufficient interest and importance. Now, after he has done that and the court has allowed the case to come up, he then files a brief. That brief is an elaboration of what he has done before. The person who has taken the case to the court files his brief first. The opposing party then files an answering brief, and the first lawyer has an opportunity, if he wants to, to file a brief in reply. Normally that is very short. Now, after all that has been done, then the court will set the case down for argument. In the ordinary case, each side is allowed an hour. In cases of lesser importance, the court puts them on what's called the summary calendar, in which you're allowed only half an hour. Then the clerk will let you know when the case is coming up. And you're supposed to be there while the case ahead of yours is being argued. Now that may mean that you have to be there a day before your case is actually reached. Then you sit, listening to the case ahead, getting some feeling of the temper of the judges on the particular day, and the crucial moment comes when your case is called And if you're for the person who's appealing, you argue first. What
1: relative weight would you give to oral argument before the court as opposed to the written briefs?
4: I've always thought that oral argument was of great importance. I often think that a lawyer's presentation can arouse the court's interest better than the printed word. can be something dramatic about it even occasionally something emotional about it. So that uh, I've always been a great believer in oral argument. How do you go about
1: presenting a case to the court in oral argument? What do you feel is particularly
4: effective? Now there are all kinds of ways of arguing to a court. Some lawyers write out their argument. I've even seen a lawyer read such a written out argument which is abominable. Other lawyers have notes to which they refer. I have never done that. I believe that if a lawyer has studied his case and knows his case, he doesn't need anything. He'd get up there and talk. An effective argument, in my judgment, is one which concentrates on the essential facts necessary for the application of the constitutional principle which is involved. Then an analysis of that principle in a simple language as possible, and then you should wind up with a sentence which you sort of thought about ahead of time, which may have some eloquence in it if the nature of the case justifies it. Otherwise, it should be a simple, hard, matter-of-fact argument, and actually the shorter the better. The very first case I ever argued there was a very important case, as it turned out, and it arose in Oregon a conviction of a member of the Communist Party by the name of de Jong, J-O-N-G-E it's spelled, for violating their law, punishing the advocacy of the overthrow of government by force. He wasn't charged with having said anything about overthrowing the government by force, but only with having talked about unemployment. This was during the Depression. So I, in about ten minutes went into the details of the facts and the opinion of the highest court of Oregon and then said, this is clearly a denial of due process because he was not charged with anything illegal at all. Adding, what more can a lawyer say? I sat down and I won the case. (laughs) But of course, I haven't always been as concise as that and I haven't by any means always been as successful as that. But style varies a great deal even among lawyers today. For instance, years ago, there was a lawyer, and he used to argue before the Supreme Court, much the way he might before a jury. He walked up and down, and he ranted, and he quoted the Bible, and he talked about the law of God. Of course, they sat there stony-faced and paid no attention, although he won a great many of his cases because he should have won them. The justices of the Supreme Court are free, I gather, to interrupt and to question a lawyer... A lawyer who has carefully planned his argument is often disconcerted by the fact that the justices will interrupt him. I remember once some years ago I argued a case for nearly an hour and I didn't have three minutes consecutive statement by myself. The justices just piled into me from all over the place. What kinds of questions do the justices ask? The justices, I must say, don't always ask questions which the lawyers think are sensible. They will ask about facts in the case which the lawyer may think have nothing to do with the constitutional issue. It depends on the justice. Some of them are very incisive and have sufficient familiarity with the case ahead of time. Others are not so good. Some of them are very keen Then there are other cases that don't interest them and they don't ask many questions. Can a justice in fact help a lawyer in his argument? Oh yes, Yes. many a time. Many a time a justice has helped a lawyer by calling his attention to something in the record that he had not momentarily thought of in answer to another question. Or by disputing the view expressed by one of his fellow justices. Particularly that was very true when Black and Frankfurter were both on the court because they were not too happy with each other And every once in a while there'd be this crisscross of comment between them So that frequently a justice will come to the help of a lawyer Sometimes because he thinks the lawyer needs it sometimes because he delights in opposing his uh, colleague Many Supreme Court cases involve the federal government. Oh Lord, yes most of the cases the Supreme Court hears involve the government in one way or another
1: Is it possible to distinguish between the responsibilities of the government
4: lawyer and a private lawyer? Would you do that? Yes. Private counsel have really only the selfish interests of their client to consider. Government counsel have to consider a great deal more. For instance, the solicitor general's office is charged with the responsibility of handling all cases in the Supreme Court. And the first part of that responsibility is to decide when the government having been licked in a lower court, should the case go to the Supreme Court. And many a time, the Solicitor General will not take an appeal, even though the local government lawyer is anxious to have it done, because he doesn't think it's a particularly good case for the issue to be presented to the court. And he'll wait until some better case comes along. Then he has also the responsibility... Of advising the court that he thinks the other side is right. A private lawyer will practically never do that, but the Solicitor General's office will do what's called confessing error. Now the court isn't bound to accept that advice, but I've never known it not to.
1: You've mentioned that the lawyer has a relatively small amount of time
4: at his disposal for his argument. Have you found this to be a disadvantage? For the ordinary case, I have never had any difficulty in adjusting myself either to the hour or to the half hour. And I think a lawyer who knows his case should have no difficulty. It is true that sometimes there's been so much questioning that the lawyer feels he should have a little more time. And occasionally, the Chief Justice, in recognition of that, will allow him a few minutes more time. But there is a light at the place where the lawyer stands which tells him that he has only five minutes more, and a red light that tells him he has only a shorter period. And ordinarily, the Chief Justice will say, your time is up, Mr. Frankel, or whoever it may be. And you finish your sentence, and then you sit down.
1: The argument of a case before the Supreme Court is public, and anyone is free to take a seat in the courtroom and to listen but the justices discuss cases and make their decisions in a strictly private conference. Opinions are then written and rewritten and after a time announced publicly. We were privileged to discuss the decision making process and the writing of court opinions with Tom C. Clark. Justice Clark was appointed to the United States Supreme Court in 1949 by President Truman whose attorney general he then was and he served as an associate justice until his retirement from the bench in 1967. Justice Clark has given us a unique first-hand look at the court at work.
0: We sit in the court and hear arguments beginning on Monday morning at 10 o'clock and until 2.30 with a half an hour for lunch. We run through Thursday on this schedule. Then on Friday we have what is known as a court conference. We hold it in a room behind the bench, across the hall from the courtroom itself. We do not permit anyone in this room other than the justices. The door is always closed. If someone knocks, it is usually a page boy, and the junior justice in seniority answers it. Usually, uh, the uh, page boy will uh, hand you a note or uh, perhaps a book or something else that may be addressed to one of the justices. Uh, the page boy does not enter the room. Then when I was acting as a uh, doorkeeper I would take the note or whatever it is to the justice to whom it was addressed. I acted as a uh, keeper of the door for five years. Uh, perhaps the highest paid doorkeeper in the world. What do you do when you first go into the conference room? What is the tradition? The nine of us shake hands with one another I suppose a mathematician could figure out uh, how many handshakes that is. Chief Justice Fuller uh, started this custom uh, many years ago. He thought that it would create uh, more light and less heat uh, during the conference. And I rather think that uh, it does just that. But as you talk about highly controversial matters, sometimes uh, the atmosphere does get a little heated. Although during my 18 years on the court, Uh, I received more light than heat uh, from our conferences. Is there an agenda for the conference? How does the discussion proceed? The clerk, uh, towards the beginning of the week, will circulate a list of cases. On this list will be all the cases that have become ripe for discussion since our last conference, together with the argued cases that have been heard that week. Uh, This list will be discussed on our Friday session. We take up the cases one by one from this list. Uh, The Chief Justice begins the discussion and then recognizes each justice seniority-wise. For example, Mr. Justice Black would be first and then Justice Douglas and then myself and then on down uh, the members of the court until uh, the uh, junior justice is reached. Every justice passes on every case and on every matter. The voting is recorded in a notebook, somewhat like uh, uh, college students have in college. A a case uh, is devoted to each page, uh, with a scorecard, you might say, that the printers have uh, placed on the bottom of the page. It looks somewhat like uh, the scorecard that you would get at the baseball game, except, of course, uh, it has the justices' names The uh, junior justice uh, is listed at the top of the list, and the chief justice comes at the bottom. The junior justice always votes first. Uh, The old boys thought that uh, if they voted first, it might influence the younger ones. But of course, we have found out through experience that this is absurd. Anyway, we have uh, followed this old custom, well, uh, for a century or more now. Must a decision of the Supreme Court be unanimous? No, I think you'd find that a large number of our cases, while they are unanimous, that we have some, in fact, that uh, might be as low as a 5-4. And sometimes uh, we splinter considerably. This is uh, particularly true in certain fields. Uh, For example, uh, pornography uh, is uh, quite controversial and unsettled at this time. If the vote is uh, a 5-4, Well, it usually finds its way on the front pages of the newspaper. Uh, If it's unanimous, uh, the editors quite often uh, put the notice of it uh, over in the want ads. When a case has been voted upon, how is the opinion of the court written? After the vote is taken, the senior justice on the majority side, usually uh, that is the chief justice, assigns the opinion to be written to one of the justices. Uh, After a case is assigned to you for writing, of course you uh, well, you've studied it at least uh, four times. Uh, I will uh, try to outline to you uh, the way in which uh, I handle the writing of opinions. Uh, I'm sure that uh, other justices uh, do it otherwise. Uh, I first uh, go through the briefs and I pick out the points of the record uh, that the lawyers for each side have indicated are important and then I prepare a statement of the facts. Uh, Then I develop the theory of the case, that is, the legal theory, and I uh, outline the points uh, that'll be necessary to decide in the opinion. Uh, Sometimes, uh, after I've done all this, I then write out the opinion in longhand on uh, yellow scratch paper. Uh, Other times, uh, I would uh, dictate uh, uh, the uh, draft, to my secretary or to a machine. Uh, then uh, after it is typed, uh, I give a copy of the opinion to my law clerks and uh, they check all of the citations and the uh, manner in which the opinion is organized, the form and one thing or another, and they make suggestions to me. Uh, finally, after I get a draft that uh, I think uh, will muster uh, at least uh, the ones who voted on my side, I then uh, send uh, the opinion down to the printer. We have a print shop here in the basement, and it takes about an hour or so for them to uh, print up the copy. The printed copy then goes to the other members of the court? Do the justices comment or suggest changes? Uh, Yes, we circulate the printed copy, and uh, we soon start getting uh, what we call uh, returns. Each justice sends back his views which usually are written in the margin on the face of the first page of the opinion. The Justice uh, sometimes writes on the side of the page uh, some comment. For example, he might, he might say to me, Dear Tom, okay, and he might initial it. Uh, if he wishes, uh, he might add to that, uh, but see page five. And then when I turn over to page five, I see that he has written uh, something that he wants to added, or he has stricken out perhaps a whole paragraph. For the most part, uh, we strive for one opinion for the whole court and for one dissent. The dissent, incidentally, is not assigned as is the opinion of the court. It, uh, you might say, gravitates to the justice who has the most uh, flaming torch. Well, you usually know who that is because at the conference. Uh, He's been pretty vehement in uh, his statements and decided in his views. Most of the time the justice uh, would circulate a little memorandum uh, in which he would uh, tell the rest of the court that uh, in due time he will circulate uh, a dissent. Then when the dissent comes around, why, uh, then I uh, read it over very carefully again and uh, make some changes in order to meet the dissent if that's necessary. In uh, writing uh, your answer to a dissent, you never mention the dissent. Uh, You just say some claim, or you might say, it is said. And then you strike down the dissent as best you can with pretty strong language. Well, this procedure continues on for some time. I remember one time, uh, well, way back 15 years ago, uh, I held the opinion up for seven or eight months uh, waiting for all the dissents to come in. But usually uh, we get an opinion down, oh, I'd say within uh, two to three or four weeks. The justices have a rule. um, Well, it's just an unwritten understanding, you might say, uh, that any justice uh, may change his mind on any vote. In other words, the votes are all tentative. Uh, I've seen the vote of the whole court change, as a matter of fact, uh, and the judgment itself even go the other way. And uh, in one instance, I remember... Uh, it went that way unanimously What can a justice do who may agree with the majority, but who prefers to reach their decision in a different way? Well, uh, he could file a uh, What we call a concurring opinion? A justice can write anything he wishes. He can dissent or he can concur in the majority opinion Or he could just join in the judgment and write out in full uh, his reasoning if he wished to or he could just say Mr. Justice Clark uh, joins in the result. How is the opinion of the court made public? We make our opinions uh, public at an open session of the court in the courtroom. We do what we call handing down the opinion. That is, it is announced. The justice who writes the opinion usually announces it. The announcement would be a short statement, usually, it would take a whole three or four or five minutes. Uh, He tells uh, what the opinion is about. Then each dissenter can announce uh, his dissenting opinion. Uh, You know the court is steeped in tradition. Uh, This uh, routine that I've outlined about handing down opinions uh, takes uh, time, as I said. Uh, Indeed, uh, some people say that uh, we lose from three to four weeks uh, handing down opinions this manner and that we could decide uh, perhaps uh, 25 or 30 more cases each year. Uh, But as a matter of fact, I rather doubt if we could do that. And the handing down of opinions has become such a custom with the court that I doubt if it will ever be changed. It draws attention to the opinions of the court, and they being very uh, important opinions, why it has some dignity that you can't have when you just file an opinion with a clerk and some uh, newspaper reporter picks it up. It doesn't have the force, you might say, than when he's heard it in the courtroom from the mouth of the Justice who wrote it. Uh, Many people do not think about the significance of courts. The courts are as important, well, I think more more important, in fact, than any other branch of the government. Indeed, they have the last word in our system of checks and balances. Even though a law is written uh, by the legislature, it must be interpreted in the courts. And so, in the final analysis, whether a law meets the test of the Constitution is for the courts to decide, and in the ultimate, the Supreme Court of the United States. And this is equally true of every executive decision of the President of the United States.
1: The business of the Supreme Court is, of course, the business of all of us. And it comes home to us in many ways. Many court decisions turn on considerations not always easy to grasp and they are received quietly when they are reported at all. But they may, in time, revolutionize some aspect of life around us. A few landmark decisions of the court make headlines the day that they are read, and for many days thereafter. The court has rarely been far from the great issues which have confronted Americans, and thus it has rarely been free from controversy. Indeed, John Frank notes just this as he closes with an appreciation of the public posture of the Supreme Court in the past, today, and in the
3: future. The fact is, as has been noted by all foreign commentators on the American scene from the earliest days of the Republic, that the American people has a way of converting most of the questions which trouble it, or at least many of them, into legal issues. And the consequence is that an extraordinarily large proportion of the national problems do find their way to the Supreme Court. And this is true in the 1960s, and it was true in the 1860s, and it was true in 1800. But when the court is deciding, for example, how confessions shall be handled in the lower courts, or what is to happen in the police station, or what is to happen in relation to racial segregation, or what is to happen in relation to prayers in the public schools. In other words, when the court is deciding a great issue, the problem of the enforcement of its judgment will depend fundamentally upon the receptivity of the country at that particular point to that particular rule. And there may be a good deal of resistance, either passive or non-passive, and it may take the court a very great many years to carry its conclusions into effect. Thus, Chief Justice Warren has frequently been maligned by those who are distressed with the direction in which he leads the tribunal over which he presides. But not a word has been said about Chief Justice Warren one whit harsher than the words that were said about Chief Justice Marshall 150 years ago, who by the wisdom and force of his decisions largely formed the American Republic and gave the structure to the government we know. So the matter of having the Supreme Court in controversy is not peculiar to our time and is not really radically more in degree at the present than it has been at many intervals in the American past. There have also been dead periods in Supreme Court history. In the year 1952, I wrote a piece called The Supreme Court The Passive Period, and the general theme of it was that just plain nothing was happening in the Marble Palace, and for a time that was true. But I must say, events have proved that there's been a dance or two in the old dog yet, and I rather suspect that it will be that way for the rest of American history.